Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. We're going to read the whole chapter. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Man, you may have a seat. So about every week or so, I try to listen to a podcast called This American Life. If you don't know what a podcast is, it's essentially a broadcast that you can listen to for free on your computer, your phone, or your other media device. And it's kind of like a TV series in that uh, each podcast typically fun functions as like an episode in a series. So Bethel, for example, has a podcast, and each episode is just a sermon audio from the week. So anyway, I recently listened to an episode of This American Life called In Defense of Ignorance, Stories Making the Case for Not Knowing. In the second act of the podcast, which is called Ignorance for Dummies, Sean Cole, he's one of the producers of the show, he talks with Professor David Dunning about research that he conducted with a grad student named Justin Kruger. So Dunning and Kruger gathered different groups of undergrads at Cornell University and gave them a, qu a quiz that was on one of three things, grammar, logical reasoning, or humor. And for that last one, what they did was they had comedians come in beforehand and rate jokes, and when the students took the quiz, they had to try to tell which one was the most funny. Now, after the students took the quizzes, they were each asked to guess how well they did compared to the rest of the group. So Dunning and Kruger focused on the bottom 25% in each study, so the ones who had the lowest scores, and they found that the students who scored in the 11 to 13th percentile that's not great, thought they performed in the 60 to 70th percentile. So those who did really poorly thought they did really well. Now, if you think that might have been a fluke, 
Dunning and Kruger conducted this experiment four times with four different groups of students, and every single time, those who were the most confident about their knowledge uh, were the ones who had the uh, least reason for being so. So uh, to put it in broad terms, the ones who thought they knew the most were the ones who proved to be the most ignorant. Now, that's similar to the situation Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. At this time in Corinth, in Paul's writing around AD 55, idol worship was ingrained in the fabric of society. Like so much so that the pagan temples functioned kind of like the city's restaurants. At these temples, cultic meals were often held for things like social and political events, weddings, birthday parties, and other special occasions. But these weren't mere social gatherings. They were deeply religious. So at these meals, worshipers would bring animals to sacrifice to the god of the temple. Some of the sacrifice was burned, some was tended to by the temple ministers, and some was eaten by the worshipers. And then whatever was left over was taken to the marketplace to be sold for food. So let's try to step into this situation here. Can you see the dilemma that some of these new converts to Christianity in Corinth would have had with this environment? So you grew up in this pagan environment and perhaps even attended cultic meals at the temples. But now that you've converted to Christianity, you don't want to have anything to do with idol worship uh, or the temples. But since leftovers from the cultic temples were taken to the marketplace to be sold for food, you would have no way of knowing whether or not the meat you're buying was previously offered to an idol. So do you, just, do you see the dilemma? So can you buy that meat or should you abstain and not buy it at all and find it somewhere else? Or what about if an unbeliever invites you to his home and offers you meat? Can you eat that since you can't be sure where it came from or should you abstain? Now, Paul will address both of those concerns toward the end of chapter 10. But here in chapter 8, he responds to some Christians in Corinth who are in quite a different position. Rather than wonder if they can eat food that's been offered to idols, these believers seem to be defending their rights not only to do just that, but also to continue doing so at the pagan temples. So think about why this may have been tempting for some of them. Since idol worship was so intertwined with social and political life in the city, it would have been hard to exist as a member of that society without taking part in cultic meals at the temples. And if you all of a sudden stopped going to them after you became a Christian, other people might notice and you might suffer for it. So it's not difficult to see how some believers uh, could justify their attendance at these events on the basis of knowledge, which seems to be exactly what they're doing. After all, they're good monotheists. They know there's only one God and that idols aren't real, and they know that food in and of itself is neutral before God. Now, Paul doesn't disagree with the content of their knowledge, but he does point out some significant problems with their thinking and behavior. First, they don't possess knowledge like they think they do, because Real knowledge must be coupled with love, which they're missing. So in that way, they're examples of the Dunning-Kruger effect, where those who have the least knowledge are the ones who think they have it in abundance. And second, they're wrong. 
not everyone has the knowledge they claim. Some Christians in Corinth can't eat food offered to idols, especially so at pagan temples, without being drawn away from Christ and back into idolatry. And so Paul calls those who claim knowledge to walk a path of sacrificial love toward their brothers and sisters in Christ and give up that practice. So let's work through the chapter and break this down into more detail. We'll have two points to consider. One, real knowledge. That'll be verses 1 to 6. And two, sacrificial love. That'll be verses 7 to 13. So first, real knowledge. Paul begins in verse 1 with the phrase, now concerning food offered to idols. It seems here that he's turning attention uh, to another issue that the Corinthians raised in a previous letter to him. Okay, so in chapter 7, verse 1, he introduces that letter and the first issue saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Then in chapter 7, verse 25, he uses that same phrase, now concerning, and addresses a second item from the letter saying, now concerning the betrothed. And here in chapter 8, he again uses that phrase, now concerning, and focuses on a third issue. And he begins in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. You may notice in your Bible that quotation marks have been placed around the phrase, all of us possess knowledge. Those have been added to help us see that this was likely a popular slogan uh, in Corinth among these Corinthians. And in a sense, they're right. Paul says as much in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. And in this case, Paul spells out the content of the Corinthians' knowledge for us in verses 4 to 6. He says, and look with these verses uh, with me. In verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, and watch the quotation marks that highlight the, the likely slogan in Corinth, an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, like traditional gods like Zeus, Hermes, and so on, and lords, that could be a reference to the imperial cult where the Roman emperor and some members of his family were worshipped. Yet for us, Paul says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So monotheism, the belief that there is one God, apparently was not a problem for these folks. They could affirm our fighter verse from a couple weeks ago. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But something was wrong. Paul says at the end of verse 1, this knowledge puffs up meaning that it causes a person to be arrogant. But, he says, love builds up. Paul uses that word that's translated puffs up or arrogant a number of times in 1 Corinthians, and it's always a bad thing. So in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, 
that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. In chapter 4, verse 18, he says, some are arrogant or puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant or puffed up people, but their power. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, are you arrogant or puffed up? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And finally, in chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or puffed up. So the question here in verse 1 is, how does this knowledge, this belief that there is one true God, lead one to arrogance? We need to be careful here. The problem is certainly not with the doctrine. It's with the people. These Corinthians are using their knowledge that God is one and that idols aren't real to justify eating food sacrificed to idols even though it can harm their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're tearing others down, not building them up in love. So in other words, they could affirm Deuteronomy 6.4, there's one God, but they've gone awry when it comes to Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, to be clear, knowledge and love aren't at war with one another in this passage. Paul isn't advocating ignorance. Instead, he's calling attention to the fact that by their actions, these Corinthians are proving that they don't have real knowledge at all. Listen to how he puts it in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought. They're modeling a version of that Dunning-Kruger effect. They think they know something, but they're arrogant. So they don't yet know as they ought. They don't have the real thing. Real knowledge is different. And Paul emphasizes that in verse 3. Look at that verse. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. John Piper has a helpful video on these verses in his Look at the Book series. If, if you haven't seen any of those videos, I would encourage you to go watch them online. You can find them at desiringgod.org and search for uh, Look at the Book. But in this particular video, he points out that in this verse, in verse 3, where Paul says, but if anyone loves God, you'd expect Paul to have said, but if anyone knows as he ought. So if you rephrase it, it goes something like this. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone knows as he ought, he is known by God. And Piper argues, and I think he's right, that for Paul, loving God is interchangeable with real knowledge. So in other words, knowledge, if it's the real thing, results in love for God. 
And not only in love for God, but also in love for people that desires to build them up. And if there's any doubt about this, we need the end of verse three. Paul says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It's important to point out here that the Greek word that's translated is known is actually in the perfect tense. So it could be rendered has been known. So do you know what that means? It means that if a person has true knowledge, knowledge that results in love for God and love for neighbor, if he really loves God, the only reason he has that is because he's first been loved by God, first been known by God. This is the doctrine of election, which is something that we wholeheartedly affirm at Bethel. Listen to our statement of faith on this. We believe that God's grand purpose for creation in all of human history is the glorification of his holy name. Before the ages began, the Father lovingly purposed to save a multitude of sinners. He foreknew this vast company, choosing them before the foundation of the world. He predestined them for adoption through Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his Son who accomplished all his Father's will, ransoming this people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, all to the praise of his glorious grace." Yes, and amen to that. Now, if you believe that, if you believe that before the ages began, God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, lovingly purposed to save you by sending Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist, to die for your sins, what virtues should that produce in your heart? If you believe that, what should that produce? Think at the very least, humility and love. But it often doesn't work this way, does it? Folks who believe this doctrine have a reputation for lording their knowledge over other people, looking down on them for not thinking the same way. Just this morning, I saw a meme on Facebook, and this is, it's funny, but it's, I mean, it's, it's funny and sad at the same time. It's a meme on Facebook that said something like, don't have enough money for seminary? Pick a fight with a Calvinist and you'll get lectures for free. <laughs> Man, that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, I'm sure that I fell into this camp when I first became a Christian and learned about election. We have a tendency to take God's good gifts and twist them in sinful ways, and knowledge is no exception. Have you ever known the right doctrine or theology and been impatient toward those who don't? Have you ever felt prideful because your theological understanding is greater than somebody else's? Husbands, you can commit this error toward your wives. Wives, you can commit this error toward your husbands. Parents, you can commit this error toward your children. Students, you can commit this error toward your friends, and we could go on and on and on. And make no mistake, when we do this with right doctrine, the problem is not with the doctrine. It's with us. It's with me. We don't know as we ought to know because real knowledge produces love for God and love for neighbor. So we're calling this series in 1 Corinthians cruciform living. Cruciform meaning in the shape of the cross. 
the Corinthians needed their lives, uh, they needed to live their lives with Jesus at the center, and they needed to be shaped by the cross and its values. We need that too, and this topic of knowledge is no exception. If anyone had a reason to be puffed up because of his knowledge, it was Jesus, God the Son. Yet, he made time for children. He showed grace and patience to his disciples in their ignorance. He poured out love and mercy on others, healing the sick and casting out demons. And ultimately, in the greatest act of sacrificial love in all of history, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is such good news, and it's something that we need to hear and believe every single day as Christians. That confronts us in our pride. That should make us humble. That should produce in us love for God and love for neighbor. But if you're here this morning, and if you aren't a believer, this is really good news for you too. All of the knowledge in the world can't cleanse you of your sin and make you right with God, but Jesus can. Jesus can do that, and he offers you that gift today for free. The only thing he asks is that you lay down all your efforts, all your arms, and come to him for forgiveness and mercy and cleansing, and he will save you. You know, one of the things that I love about Bethel is our commitment to faithful doctrine and practice. If you need evidence of it, go on the website and look at that statement of faith. Man, that thing is robust. It's, it's great. It's so good. And I also love about Bethel that we are a very loving church. I've experienced that firsthand. But we would be foolish to think that we can't fall into this error of possessing a knowledge that leads to pride and tearing down of others. So let's pursue right doctrine, but let's be sure to also be cultivating a love for God and love for neighbor. Let's fight together for the real thing. And let's also, and this is our second point, pursue sacrificial love. So look with me at verse 7. Paul says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So what is going on here? Well, when Paul says, not all possess this knowledge, he is not saying that there are some Christians in Corinth who deny that there is only one true God. You can't be a Christian and deny that. Instead, he's saying that when it comes to food offered to idols, there are some Christians in Corinth who have a weak conscience, which, simply put, conscience is that it's a part of you that distinguishes right from wrong. It's your inner consciousness that tells you what's right and what's wrong. Having a weak conscience doesn't mean that you are morally weak, but rather that you can't partake in something that's not sinful without thinking that it's sinful. And so in this case, in 1 Corinthians 8, that something, that action, is food offered to idols. Some of these believers, because of their past life, can't separate eating meat that's been offered to idols with idolatry. 
And so if they eat idol meat, they defile their conscience. And to defile one's conscience is a serious thing. Paul says in Romans 14, 23, regarding the permissibility of eating certain foods, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That means that if your conscience tells you something is wrong and you do it anyway, you are in sin, regardless of whether or not the action was actually sinful. So if you believe that eating meat offered to idols is wrong because of your past engagement with idol worship, and if you eat meat offered to idols anyway, you sin and you defile your conscience. That's what some of these believers are in danger of here, and that is why Paul is urging those who are defending their right to eat food offered to idols at the pagan temples to abandon that and to act in love toward their brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul continues in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. This is a statement that Paul and these Corinthians probably would have both agreed with. In and of itself, meat is just meat. Abstaining from it is not going to condemn you before God, neither will eating it commend you to God. The bacon lovers in this room are probably silently rejoicing right about now. But that said, these knowledgeable Corinthians are using that liberty that food is just food, too cavalierly, and they're justifying their eating at pagan temples. And so Paul gives them a clear warning that shows up in verses 9 to 11. Look at these verses with me. Paul says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's warning those who are using their knowledge and freedom to justify eating idol food at pagan temples that their behavior can cause other Christians to follow suit. And the problem he points out here is that those Christians who have weak consciences when it comes to food offered to idols, um, when they see these believers eating at pagan temples, they are tempted to do so. They're tempted to go to these pagan temples and eat food offered to idols. And for them, this not only violates their conscience, this not only causes them to sin, but this also draws them away from Jesus and back into idolatry. It's like they're taking 1 Thessalonians 1.9 and moving in reverse. Instead of turning to God from idols, they're turning to idols from God. So listen to N.T. Wright explain the situation. He says, quote, The problem he's facing, that's Paul, is that several of the Corinthians or several of the Christians in Corinth, before their conversion, which was after all quite recent, had been regular worshipers in the shrines of idols. They knew what went on there, the dark sense of mystery and fear, 
the sense that in feasting at the God's table, you were really eating and drinking the God himself, taking his life to be your own life. And then the drink, the sense of casting off moral restraint, the girls and boys waiting around the back to do whatever you wanted in return for a little extra payment to the God. And once you had shared in that dark but powerful world on a regular basis, perhaps for many years, it would be difficult in your memory and imagination to separate part of it from the whole thing. Now that you had become a Christian, you would feel you had been rescued from the world of darkness and brought out into the light. And looking back, you wouldn't be able to split that old world up into different bits. You wouldn't be able to say that this bit was all right while that bit was wicked. The very smell of the meat that you used to eat in the temple with the priests chanting and the drink and the prostitutes waiting for you would bring it all back. It would be natural and right that your conscience could not, without some years of teaching, prayer, and wise help, cope with any element of the old package deal, even if Christian friends who perhaps hadn't had that background had no problem with one aspect of it, namely the meat. And Paul is concerned, deeply concerned for such people, he doesn't want their consciences to be troubled. Do you see how serious this is? Verse 11 tells us, and by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Destroyed. While that could mean cause a person to sin, it seems more appropriate that it means spiritually destroy, as in, we'll send you to hell. Two quick reasons I think that's the case. One, when Paul uses this term that's translated destroy elsewhere, it always deals with eternal destruction. It would be odd for it to take a different meaning here. And two, this understanding of the word makes sense with what Paul's describing. One believer's actions are enticing another to violate his conscience and fall back into idolatry. And as Paul has already said in chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this doesn't mean that the brother for whom Christ died lost his salvation. Instead, the person the Corinthians regarded as a brother for whom Christ died will be destroyed on the day of judgment, not because he lost his salvation, but because his actions proved that he was never really in the faith in the first place. This should shock the Corinthians into obedience. So far as they're concerned, these individuals are brothers for whom Christ died, and their misuse of their liberty can cause them to turn away from God and back into idolatry. It'll kill them. And if that's not weighty enough, Paul continues to press in verse 12. He says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That is as serious as it can get. Sinning against a brother or sister in Christ is equivalent to sinning against Jesus himself. This is reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 5 to 6. He says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. It is no wonder that Paul concludes in verse 13 with that really broad statement. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. At the prospect of sinning against his brother or sister in Christ and therefore sinning against Christ himself, Paul is willing to lovingly and sacrificially lay down his rights. I think that's what this passage is calling the knowledgeable Christians to do. Later in chapter 10, verses 1 to 22, Paul's going to expressly forbid them from eating idol meat at pagan temples on the grounds that doing so is participating with demons. But here, he appeals to them on the basis of love. Their actions have the potential to cause others to depart from the faith and fall back into idolatry. Therefore, the loving thing is for them to sacrificially give up what they see as their right, their right in their minds to eat idol meat at pagan temples. Paul's calling them to give that up for the good of their brother in Christ. They need cruciform living. They need to be shaped by the cross of Christ. Jesus sacrificially laid down his life for his people. He purchased them with his own blood. They dare not harm these believers who have weak consciences. Instead, they need to themselves put on the sacrificial love of Jesus and die to themselves, even if no longer going to the pagan temples is going to cost them something. And it could have in this context. Now, it's difficult in our 21st century American context to apply this passage directly. There aren't many in the church who have backgrounds in idolatry and are tempted to return by our actions. Um, perhaps one area to consider, though, is yoga. So Whitney and I have a friend who was involved in New Age spirituality. And along with those beliefs, she practiced yoga. And by that, I'm not meaning just the stretchy part. I'm not going to try to do a move for you. But I, I mean the entire thing, the stretchy part plus the religious aspect that goes along with it. But now that she's a Christian, she can't participate in that anymore. She can't do so without violating her conscience. How unloving would it be for us then to invite her to our home and break out the yoga mats? I mean, for real. Like, how unloving would that be? Do you see what that could do to this sister? This used to be part of her religion. Okay, and if we, and if we had her over and did that, what if that caused her to abandon the faith and go back into New Age spirituality? Paul has the strictest of warnings for us in this passage on those grounds. But another area where this gets applied, and this is where it starts to get hard to apply this directly to our context, is alcohol. But we need to be careful here. For, for one, 
This isn't a, an exact one-to-one parallel for what's going on in the passage. But also, when it comes to alcohol and other like, similar issues, sometimes this passage is taken to mean that you shouldn't do something if it's going to offend someone. Offense as in, I think that's wrong and you're offending my sensibilities. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Paul is speaking into a situation in which one believer's actions are causing another believer to be tempted to turn from God to idols. But that said, in the case of alcohol and similar issues, I think there are some things we could say. So this passage could call Christians who feel free to drink to voluntarily abstain if they are with a believer who has struggled with alcohol abuse. Why? Because for those persons, having a drink when you're with some, someone who needs to abstain from alcohol could cause them to fall back into sin. You see how that could be the case? So in that case, love for your brother or sister in Christ and love for Jesus should motivate us to lay down our liberty. Bethel, let's put on Christ-like, sacrificial love and be willing to surrender our rights for the sake of brothers and sisters who may be led to turn away from Christ by our behavior. And let's do so even if it costs us something. So take a look around the room. Jesus died for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Us here, our Bethel family, those of us who are trusting in Jesus, Jesus died for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We too must die for our brothers and sisters. Sanctification, in a sense, is a community project. Let's be sure also that we know our brothers and sisters well enough to put this into action in the first place. So do you even know what might cause those in your community group to turn away from God? Today is a community group Sunday. This is a community group week. These might be good issues to work through together. This requires honesty and openness both ways. You have to be honest with me, and I have to be honest with you. Let's also be sure that our knowledge and our liberty aren't leading us to sin. Remember, that 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 seems to be the case in Corinth, where some of these believers are taking their freedom, their liberty over food offered to idols, and they're extending it to idol food at pagan temples. So maybe we need to hear these words from David Garland. He says, While many today may perceive a greater danger from prohibition and intolerance, Paul feared most the the danger of accommodation and compromise with a pagan environment. Christianity does not require that Gentiles become Jews, but it does not allow Gentile Christians to continue to be pagans. We need Jesus through and through and through and through. We need our lives to be shaped by the cross. 
We need to live our lives with the cross of Christ at the center. We need with the strength that God supplies to pursue real knowledge and sacrificial love. Let's pray. Father, please help us do this. God, give us to greater and greater degrees real knowledge where our knowledge of you, our knowledge of theology, our knowledge of right doctrine produces, is coupled with love for you and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Produce this in us by the power of your spirit. We need you, Father, to do this. And Lord, help us, enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in sacrificial love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, being willing to lay down our liberty if it means another brother or sister in Christ not walking away from the faith. God, help us to put on real knowledge. Help us to put on sacrificial love. Help us to model our Savior, Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We love you, God, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.